Hi everyone, and welcome to episode one of Coffee and Killers, aka Mommy Self Care. Um, I just thought that since we're new here, that I could explain myself a little bit and why um, I decided to go this route and share this podcast with you all. Um, I am a teacher by training. Um, I had a full-time career as a special ed teacher for nearly a decade. Um, And when I decided to leave that job and become a mom to my forever children, as well as um, a number of ever-changing foster children, I found myself in the middle of the hardest job I have ever had. Um, I had lost my body, my youth, time for myself, my hobbies, my career, and I gained um, very loved, but also extremely exhausting children. And the mess of up to nine kids at once in my home, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, had me uh, losing my mind a little bit. Um, Now, as a woman who struggled with infertility for years, I know how it feels to lose a child, um, the disappointment and the emptiness inside. I know how it feels to anticipate um, a positive pregnancy test month after month and be disappointed. Um, I am a blessed, very blessed adoptive mom. I am a very blessed foster mom. And I was even able to have a miracle and very expensive IVF baby. Um, So I know the joy of motherhood. Um, I know how it is to look at someone and have my heart literally feel like it's fluttering in my chest out of love for that person. Um, But I'm not here to sugarcoat things. Life is hard. Momming is hard. Uh, Trauma parenting, if you have any experience, is effing hard. Um, It's during my time as a stay-at-home mom that many, um, of many, that I began using podcasts as a means of self-care. Because as great as a girl's night out or an aromatherapy bath sounds, uh, carving out that time is really tricky. But what I could find time for was putting on a pair of headphones and rage cleaning or cooking dinner with noise-canceling headphones on, um, getting stuff done, but also kind of blocking the world out around me. Um, It's a win-win. And... If I could muffle the sibling bickering and incessant use of my name while feeding the love of all things murder-related and get the house clean, you can't lose there. Uh, So my hope is that whether you're a mom, a dad, a hopeful parent, um, or somebody who just has a lot of stress in their life and needs a little self-care, parent or not, um, I am hoping that you'll be able to grab a cup of coffee with me Put on this podcast and kind of let the stress of your life go around you um, and focus on something uh, while very tragic can also be very enjoying to listen to because it's it's rather intriguing if I do say so myself. Um, but you're here for a reason, so you must love murder just as much as I do. All right, so today... Um, For episode one, I am drinking a home-brewed cup of Jamaican Me Crazy. Um, It's a blend of vanilla, caramel, and coffee liqueur flavoring. 
Um, it's one of my favorite local coffees to buy. It's a bit nostalgic for me. Um, the aroma and the flavor take me right back to my mid-20s, which I really wish I was still in. Um, so sit back, relax, de-stress with me. Now, on to our story. During the evening hours of February 9th, 2015, 911 dispatchers received a call from a woman who by all accounts appeared to be so distraught that the female dispatcher on the receiving end repeatedly told the caller that she couldn't understand her. This caller was 37-year-old Jean Tan. Police arrived at the well-kept home of Jim and Jean Tan, located in Pittsburgh, New York, at 6.10 p.m. Pittsford is a wealthy suburb of Rochester, New York, and it boasts large homes owned by well-to-do families of lawyers, doctors, and the like. Jean and her 19-year-old son, Charlie, were awaiting the arrival of police in the home's driveway with their hands raised in the air. When the police entered the home, most of the rooms were in typical working order until they reached the office space of Jim Tan, the patriarch of the family. Jim was found slumped on the floor behind his desk, dead from a fatal gunshot wound to the face and two additional shots to his upper body. The wounds were not fresh. In fact, it was described in the police report that the blood in each wound and the blood pooled around his head were dry and crusted. Several shell casings were found, including one in the laundry basket in the hallway and another in an upstairs bathroom. It was obvious to the officers on scene that this shooting did not happen that night as described by Jean in the 911 call. Now, let's talk about Charlie, shall we? To say the community around him was shocked to hear of his arrest would be an understatement. Charlie and his brother Jeffrey, who was two and a half years older than Charlie, were raised during their early years in Canada by both of his parents before moving to Pittsburgh, New York. Charlie was known to be a good student. He was an athlete in high school and voted the student body president by his peers. After high school, Charlie attended Cornell University and Ivy League College in Ithaca, New York, about two hours from where his family resided. 
While there, he studied economics, played sprint football, and pledged in a fraternity with one of his high school buddies, Whitney Knickerbocker. Charlie's friends described him as popular, well-liked, and someone that wouldn't hurt a fly. He was said to be the kindest, sweetest person ever. The people in Charlie's life were so surprised by this turn of events that one friend began collecting funds for his defense to the tune of $50,000. The day of his arraignment, a crowd of supporters flooded into the Monroe County Court building, at one point chanting his name as if he were a high-profile celebrity. As a Rochesterian myself, I remember this case hitting the news in 2015. I was a new mom and a special education teacher. I consider myself pretty well educated, but now looking back at the media reports, there are so many holes in what was reported compared to what we know now. Let me catch you up with a timeline of events leading up to the 911 call resulting in Charlie's arrest on February 9th. The first notable date is January 28th, 2015. Jean Tan calls 911, alleging that her husband Jim had choked her and she needed assistance for safety. Yes, hi, my name is Jean Tan and uh, I'm at a 37 coast sign-in. And uh, my husband just beats me up and I need your protection. Are you injured? Yes, I'm. He choked me and uh, I'm so scared. Please, please come. Oh, you call me? No. <laughs> please come. Please come here. Oh, oh, One week later, on February 5th, Charlie approached his football coach at Cornell and explained that due to some family problems, he would have to miss weightlifting that night. This, combined with missing practice, was very out of character for Charlie, so coach asked him to call him later and let him know he made it home all right. But that phone call never came. In fact, Charlie didn't even return back to school the next day or the following Monday. That same day, February 5th, Charlie was seen on surveillance video at the Cornell, New York Walmart, attempting to purchase a shotgun. Unfortunately for Charlie, his Canadian citizenship meant a mandatory six-day wait for any gun purchase. Charlie wasn't having that. At 4 p.m. the same day, Charlie's high school friend, and now frat brother, Whitney Knickerbocker, was seen at the same Walmart purchasing the same gun Charlie had attempted to purchase earlier in the day. Later that day, after a two-hour drive from Cortland to the Rochester area, Charlie spent time from 6.30 to 9.30 with his good friend Anna and her boyfriend at a restaurant. There are a couple of notable times during the duration of this dinner. 
the first being that Jim Tan's last outgoing email from his work account occurred at 8.40 p.m. while the friends were at dinner. Anna later testified that Charlie acted completely normal with no out-of-ordinary behavior, but it seems that something drastically changed in his demeanor by the time he reached the home of his friend Jacob Grossman at 10 p.m. Perhaps the change in behavior was triggered by the outgoing call from Charlie's phone to his mother at 9.50 p.m., which lasted two minutes, while on his way to meet at Grossman's house to watch TV. Grossman testified that when Charlie arrived at his house, he looked as if he had been crying, and at one point during their short time together that night, Charlie told his friend that he, quote, might leave the country the next day, unquote. Grossman was so concerned with Charlie's behavior that together with his mom, they drove by the tan home later that night and also called 911 requesting a welfare check for Charlie. At 11.35 p.m., Deputy William Connell arrived and spoke with Charlie Tan for five to 10 minutes. Connell testified that Charlie's demeanor was calm. The following day, Charlie sent a single text to his friend Anna stating, I love you and I will talk to you soon which she found unusual, but attempts to reach him after the text were unsuccessful. Saturday and Sunday went by quietly. Colleagues of Jim noted it to be highly unusual for the CEO to be unresponsive to emails on weekends, let alone weekdays, as it was Friday this day. Prosecutors state that there is evidence that during this time, Charlie and his mother traveled to Canada where they purchased one-way tickets to China in an attempt to flee. It's not certain why they didn't follow through with the plan to leave the country, but it is speculated that Charlie feared the murder of his father being blamed on his mother. Two days pass. At 5.15 on Monday, February 9th, a few hours before Jean Tan calls 911 to report the shooting death of her husband, Charlie's fraternity brothers received an email from Charlie titled Showtime. The email began, quote, in the coming days, you'll start to hear things in the news and possibly get a couple visits from the authorities. Don't listen to anything you hear, unquote. It goes on to mention the phrase non-sibi, which Tan has tattooed on himself and translates to mean not for self, which is a life lesson he credits his frat brothers for teaching him. Later that night, Jean called 911 and Charlie was placed into custody causing a frenzy in the quiet, upscaled neighborhood in central New York. We know that much of the community rallied behind Charlie, listing off nothing but positive opinions and stories of the teen. His father, Jim, however, didn't have such a positive group of supporters. During the trial, which started in September of the same calendar year, 2015, neighbors described him as, quote, unfriendly and intimidating, unquote. A colleague described Jim Tan as a bully at work, to which the defense used in court to question his treatment of his wife and kids at home while in a private setting. Charlie's defense attorney, James Nobles, relied heavily on outlining a pattern of domestic abuse beginning when friends of Jean Tan helped her and her children go to a shelter to escape abuse by Jim. It was testified by neighbors that the police had been present at the Tan residence in Pittsburgh, New York, many times since they moved to the neighborhood. The jury heard the last and final 911 call before Jim's death. Despite Jim's assurance that police presence was not needed, the police report from that night noted redness on Jean Tan's neck, 
but that she did not want to press charges. She did state to the police that she would be pursuing an order of protection. What the defense did not present, and the media was also not privy to, was that of the 18 911 calls from the Tan residents between 2003 and 2015, the majority of them were not from Jean requesting help, but instead they were from Jim Tan over minor familial disputes. Here's a list of some. In 2007, Jim called 911 to report that Jeffrey, his oldest son, then 13, punched him, leaving a small red bump on his head. This argument began over Jeffrey having a couple of friends over to the house, which apparently was a huge no-no in the household. In 2008, Jim called 911 again, accusing Jeffrey of poisoning his food. The following year, in 2009, he called to report that his wife, Jean, had grabbed his arm and scratched him during an argument about canceling the cell phones for their sons. He told the dispatcher that Jean was threatening to report false abuse allegations. Then, in 2012, Jim Tan bypassed the phone call completely and drove directly to the Monroe County Sheriff's Department to report another incident of being scratched by his wife after he accused his wife of stealing important documents from him. The defense chose not to present the nature of the history of 911 calls because the calls always involved Jeffrey and Jean, but never Charlie. Is it possible that Jim called 911 repeatedly over the years for such minor occurrences as an attempt to divert attention off his abuse? Or was he the abused partner in the relationship? I'll leave you to answer that for yourself. After a week-long trial, the jury deliberated for over 50 hours to determine the fate of Charles Tan. The question of whether or not the murder was premeditated and intentional was not in question, but what the jury did need to determine was who pulled the trigger on the gun that killed Jim Tan. Most curious to me is the statement Charlie made to police the night of his initial arrest when he said he, quote, had to do it because he was going to kill my mother. Unquote. Is this in reference to shooting his father or to providing the gun for his mother's safety? On October 8th, the jury could not reach a verdict, at 8 to convict and 4 to acquit. The jury was confused as many jurors stated they were willing to continue deliberation, but alas, the judge declared a mistrial. Nearly a month later, both sides stood in front of Judge Piampiano in the Monroe County Court once again to determine the next steps in the Jim Tan murder. Shockingly, instead of scheduling a retrial, Piampiano addressed the court saying there was no evidence presented that Charlie killed his father, and then he dismissed all charges. Charlie left court that day a free man. Try as they may, prosecutors could not appeal this decision, and because of double jeopardy laws, Charlie could not be tried again under the same charges. In November of 2018, three years after being a freed man, Charlie pled guilty to receiving a firearm with intent to commit an offense and two counts of making a false statement during the purchase of a firearm. It's to be noted that Whitney Knickerbocker did not receive any charges for purchasing a firearm for somebody else. In his address to the federal court, Charlie apologized for what happened taking responsibility for his actions, 
but no admission to being the shooter was ever given. Charlie now resides in a federal prison for a 20-year sentence. Recently, Charlie did admit to shooting his father in an attempt to reduce his jail time. Out of pure curiosity, I'd love to know your take on this case. Do you believe Charlie shot his father? Or do you think he provided the murder weapon to his mother, who ultimately took his life out of fear for her own life? Or do you have a different theory? Find this story on IG at Coffee and Killers Podcast and comment on the Charlie Tan post. Also, comment and let me know what coffee I need to try and highlight in the upcoming episodes. Brands, recipes, new gadgets, I'm game for anything fun. If you enjoyed this first episode of Coffee and Killers, aka Mommy's Self-Care, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. Refer us to friends and leave a five-star review. Resources for this episode came from the Democrat and Chronicle newspaper, Dateline, and the following podcasts, Court Junkie, Generation Y, and It's About Damn Crime. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you later, alligator. Musical credit goes to Kevin McLeod. More information found in the notes wherever it is you're listening.